Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett. I hope you're having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 9.56 p.m. on a Wednesday night, like three days later than I wanted to, and I apologize. I'm sorry. I was sick this week. My uh, business has been really crazy, and I failed, so I'm sorry. Uh, But it's here now, and you're listening, so it's all good. Um, I mentioned I was sick, and this Sunday, Hannah actually did the uh, announcements at church instead of me, and so what I'm going to do is just let her take it away immediately. You will hear some announcements from her, and then she's going to jump right into the message. Uh, Unfortunately, the end of this does cut off slightly. My computer ran out of room, uh, but it just missed the very, very end of her her talk, and then also also the, the benediction at the end. So you're going to miss miss out on that. Uh, if you want to see that, though, you can go check out YouTube and Facebook. Uh, otherwise, everything is here and have an awesome time. This is a great message. It's one of my favorites in a while. Small groups are pretty much over for the spring. There's a couple groups that still have like one more week left, um, depending on their schedule. But if you want to hang out, not during small group season, we have a special group for you. Uh, In May, Tuesdays in May at 7 p.m., we have a group specifically in St. Pete in person um, on Philippians. And like all of our groups, you don't have to do any homework. So you're welcome. (laughs) Um, It'll be really, really great. And then on May 6th, which is the first Saturday in May, we have a beach day at Treasure Island, which is free, except you do have to pay for parking or they will ticket you $60. Yes, yes, they doubled their prices. Don't ask me how I know that. If you are a child between the age of five and eight, you are going to exit stage that way. <laughs> I was going to say stage right, but is that right? Okay, it's correct. It's, it's correct and it's right. If you're Follow Mr. Jeremy. Go have fun adventures. And <laughs> we have such a fun passage of scripture today. And by fun, I mean really intense. These verses are usually assigned at the beginning of Lent on Ash Wednesday, which makes sense because everyone's feeling sad and pious then. And I don't know why I put them on the calendar for the week after Easter, but what better way to follow Jesus is alive than God basically yelling at people? (laughs) So super fun. We're going to read it together, and then we'll discuss. So this is in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 9. This is God talking. God says, shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. They act so pious. They come to the temple every day. They seem delighted to learn about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon their God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves. And you don't even notice. I love this line. I imagine God being like, I will tell you why. I will tell you why, God responds. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you oppress your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. That, if you've met my toddler, she's two, when she is fake upset about something, She does this with her head. When she's really upset about something, they're screaming. Um, But when she's fake upset about it, this is just what I imagine. (laughs) I imagine a whole group of people in the temple being like, "Mm, sad. 
This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere. Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned, lighten the burden of those who work for you, let the oppressed go free, remove the chains that bind people, share your food with the hungry, give shelter to the homeless, give clothes to those who need them. Do not hide from relatives that need your help. And then your salvation will come like the dawn. Your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward. And the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. And then when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I am here. I have heard a fair amount of sermons on this passage where the main theme is basically the church, the big C church, sucks. And I mean, they're not that wrong. (laughs) Oftentimes, the big C church does suck. I mean, we've all been there. But um, I do feel like this is an important question to ask before we just take these verses and like slap it onto our modern situation. What is happening here? Why is this important? What is the context? This is not a group of people just being snotty and refusing to help each other. This is a very complex sociopolitical reality. These particular verses were written after the Babylonian exile. So if you don't know what that is, the empire of Babylon came and conquered the country of Israel and took over completely and then forcibly deported a huge number of people back to Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq. So a fair distance away. They deported, let's see, they left a lot of women, children, old people, people with disabilities. They took young families, males of fighting age or strength, uh, anyone who showed promise, intelligence, or had a valuable skill or trade or business. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, you can't very well start a rebellion with babies and old people. Um, So there was no one left to fight them. There was no one left to start an uprising. And it also crippled Israel's infrastructure. So the people that were left had no tradesmen, farmers, bankers, craftspeople. They were gone. They were left to just kind of survive on their own. And also Babylon benefited from this. They took the best and the brightest and took them to their capital city and were like, and now you work for us. Like Daniel, who we know from Daniel in the lion's den, like he was one of the deported people who was so intelligent that he actually became an advisor to the king. These people that were forced to move were essentially refugees, and life was hard, but they did make it work. They built homes, they collected some wealth, they settled, they worked inside this system, and they all dreamed that they would get to go home one day. And then they stayed there for seven years. That is long enough for anyone who would have made the original trip to have died. If by chance there was someone else who was like still alive when the original war happened, they were a baby. So they have no memory of their homeland. They only have, they've heard stories about the war. They have not lived through the war. And the same with people who lived in Israel, they were left. They've heard stories about the war, but they didn't experience it. Then a new king comes on scene. The Persian Empire like conquers the Babylonian Empire, it's a whole thing. If you wanna be like bored, read history about it. But he gets, he is like, I'm king now, and he is convinced that the Israelites can go back if they want to. And some of them are like, no. (laughs) We're not going back there. But a good portion of them are like, yay, we get to go home. They They don't know what it means, right? They've never been there. They've never seen it. They've only heard stories. They sign up. They set off to journey home and reclaim their land. And they set up shop when they get there. Like they build houses. They start farming. They build a wall around Jerusalem. So what's the problem exactly? I don't know. Two groups of people who haven't seen each other in 70 years and have 
at least slightly different religious practices because they haven't seen each other in 70 years. And all of these people who are already in Israel are like barely surviving. They've had no protection from like warring tribes and warlords and bandits. And they're just like eking out an existence in this hard land. And then you have this whole other group of people who show up and they're like, we're going to make Israel great again. <laughs> so can you see that this might be a breeding ground for conflict? Um, they might not love each other very much. But all of them have lived through extreme hardship, and they're trying. They're trying to make things right. They both groups think that God is fulfilling a promise to them, that Israel is going to be restored, and they're going to be happy again. And they do not want to go down the path that led to them being conquered in the first place. So they're like, what do we do to make sure this never happens again? They are so excited to be back home. They're so thankful that God has made this possible. You might even say they're on fire for God. They're well-intentioned, right? These are not a bunch of horrible people doing horrible things to each other. Like, they're really trying. And I imagine that their worship space was like standing room only. No one missed a service. They sang psalms, old songs, new songs. They said prayers. They gave offerings. They had sermons, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> they had whatever they did back then. They talks. They had discussions. They asked questions. What does God want from us? How can we make sure we're following God correctly? How, what parts of our religion should we prioritize? And they're trying everything to get God's favor. They're like, what do we do to make God happy with us? Because they left Babylon. They come home, right? But their home is in shambles. It is a mess. It is a war-torn country. They're how do we make Israel great again, is what they're asking. And they add in anything and everything they can possibly think of to help their cause. They're like, are there rules we're not following? We should follow them. Does God not think we are being serious enough? We will prove <laughs> that we are doing everything to follow the law. We will show God we mean it. We will give up on doing things. We will deprive ourselves. We will fast. We will wear the most uncomfortable clothing we can think of. That one's always weird to me. <laughs> Like, why? It also would not work for my life. Everything must be stretchy. They're like, we're going to wear burlap. Do you know what burlap is? It's like the stuff cow feed comes in. So scratchy. They're like, God will like me if, and hear me out, I give myself a skin rash. <laughs> then God will know we're being serious, right? Fasting is a huge deal. Everybody is doing it. All the rules they can think of were being followed, and nothing was changing. Israel was not getting great again. And they're very confused. You can even see their confusion in other books of the Bible, like Zechariah. It literally says verbatim, what's it going to take to bring the glory back to our country? What do you want from us, God? Like how They seem sincere, right? They're trying really dang hard. They cannot understand God's lack of response. And they're complaining about it, which I think is reasonable. They're like, God, we have fasted before you. Why are you not impressed? We've been very hard on ourselves. You don't even notice it. How can God not notice what we are doing? They have put so much energy into their worship practices. It's consuming them. They're fasting and praying and singing and gathering and doing and doing and doing and doing. And God is not answering. So they demand to know what's going on, which maybe was a mistake <laughs> because God lays it out. 
And I'm, this is like a paraphrase. I'm going to expand and paraphrase this a little bit because I feel like it's really easy to read those verses, and this is why you get the messages that are like, the church sucks. Because we're like, yeah, how dare they not love their neighbors? I want you to imagine God saying this. You are clearly not understanding what I want in this relationship. You sing to me with your beautiful worship. I love how earnest you are in keeping my commandments. I love that you are trying to show that you love me, but then I saw that while you were loving me, you were treating the people that work for you as though they did not matter at all. You, in fact, were actively oppressing them. You were working them to the bone. You were making policy, government policy, to prevent their needs from being taken care of at the expense of your wallet. I saw that when your family members came to you for help, you dismissed them. You ignored them, you wrote them off, and the more I saw of that, the uglier your worship looked to me. I was listening when you sang your psalms of praise until I realized that you were singing only, you were only thankful for the blessings of your own life. You were only concerned about your own safety, your own comfort. And I heard the beautiful and heartfelt words of your prayer. But you were praying with your head bowed next to someone who was shivering because they didn't have a coat. And you never opened your eyes to even notice that there was someone right next to you you could help. You were fasting so meticulously and my heart was happy to know you valued our relationship so much that you would rather skip a meal than, than stop thinking about me. But then I also saw that all that food you avoided while you were fasting just got put in the trash. You didn't even consider giving it to someone who doesn't have any food, especially the widows and the orphans and the people who have no way to provide for themselves. I see you going through the motions. I see that you really mean it but it's all about you getting what you want. You haven't really let your faith affect your conscience in the slightest. You're trying to get close to me without noticing the people who are already closest to me. The poor, the oppressed, the children, the elderly who have no one to take care of them, the employees who are working their fingers to the bone and can't make ends meet, the people who are fasting not because they choose to, but because they have no food. That's heavy. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, I don't know, someone you really love and trust sitting down and being like, I see you trying, and it's not even I'm mad at you. It's I'm disappointed. <laughs> That's so much worse. What's, what pleases God? This passage is very clear. Justice. And that's a hard word because justice is relegated often to social justice, and social justice is relegated to the liberal political agenda in church rather than an essential part of God's will for every person of faith. It's really easy to talk about justice. It's really hard to put it in practice because it requires a lot from us and it often like offends people. Um, there is an archbishop, his name was Helder Camara of Brazil, and he had just famously said this. You've probably heard this. When I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. Now, 
let's not get derailed. Okay, I, this is not gonna turn into a theoretical debate of capitalism versus communism versus socialism. That debate is actually nothing more than a smokescreen that prevents us from seeing actual humans with actual needs who are right in front of us in our own resources to be able to help them. I, we're really good at debating instead of doing anything. We're like, well, what do you think would fix our society? I don't know, but how about you like, <laughs> how about we give a meal to someone who needs it? I am neither a capitalist or a communist or socialist, or, nor do I subscribe to any other form of government as the best, because all of those systems are based on power and who has it and who doesn't, and they are all run by humans. Therefore, <laughs> they are all cor either corrupt or corruptible. And I really, I almost hesitate to say this because I feel like it's really harsh, <laughs> but we love, we love, and I'm talking to myself here, okay? I'm not yelling at you. We love to get caught up debating issues that are beyond our personal capacity to fix. Instead of doing the work to love the actual people that God has already put in our lives. We're like, yes, we should talk about social policy. We should. What about the person right next to you? Social justice? Yes, we can talk about that until the cows come home. Whatever that means. Do any of you have cows? <laughs> Are you waiting for them to come home? <laughs> we can talk about it until we run out of words, until our throats are sore. But, but we cannot keep ourselves, ourselves in check for five seconds when our conservative family members say something that offend us. We have time. We have so much time to post all manner of rants on social media, to retweet every injustice we find, but we don't have time to genuinely check in with our coworker who we disagree with politically about their life and their family and their pain. We have energy to pick fights with our parents about theology and how wrong they are but we don't have the energy to just love them the way they are right now, the way we say we are so desperate to be loved ourselves. Mm. I don't like this. <laughs> we have the generosity to donate funds to people we have never met and will probably never meet, and that is a beautiful thing. But we don't have generosity to donate time and energy and emotional labor to the people who are in our lives already who happen to have beliefs that we don't like. We have resolved to cut the toxic people out of our lives, which honestly, if someone's being really like legit harmful, you should. But we don't have the resolve to cut like the defensiveness and the reactiveness out of our own hearts so we can love like Jesus loved. That's what it boils down to, doesn't it? Loving like Jesus loved. We just love to say that. And I grew up, you know, I was like a 90s kid in an evangelical church. So obviously, WWJD bracelets, the pinnacle of coolness. And now I'm like, ugh. <laughs> also, I don't think I really would want to do what Jesus did. This is a terrible slogan. None of us want to do what Jesus did. It's all well and good to be like, yes, we just want to love God and love people. We just want to love like Jesus loved. Can I get an amen? <laughs> okay, 
It's all great until we remember who Jesus loved, which included Judas, a guy who literally narked on him to the authorities. And not just that, sold his relationship with Jesus for money, and what's worse, greeted Jesus as a dear friend before handing him off to be murdered. What would Jesus do? (laughs) What's... What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus knew that was going to happen. And yet, he never treated Judas with anything but love and acceptance and affirmation. I can't even, we can't even handle people who politically disagree with us for five seconds. And this guy was literally going to hand Jesus off to be murdered. And Jesus knew that was going to happen, and he gave him responsibilities He not only loved him, he let him into his inner circle. He gave him responsibility knowing he was going to abuse them. He allowed him to be close, knowing it was ultimately going to end terribly. Oh, that sucks. (laughs) We struggle to give five minutes of openness to someone we disagree with. Jesus gave years of his life to someone who actively had it out for him. Is that the kind of fasting the Lord requires? Y'all can come back up here. Now, as with everything, this is my disclaimer. Please know, this is not a blanket, like, indictment. I'm not like, you're all terrible, and you have come here today so that I can make you feel terrible about yourselves, and you should go repent. No. Also, this is not one of those messages because I know a lot of us have been in situations where they're like, the underlying message is like, if you've been abused, then you should just be in relationship with your abuser somehow. Or you have to forgive them because that's what the Lord would want. And that is horrendous. That is not where we're going with this. However, I find that for so many people who have been on a deconstruction journey, myself included, We are like holding on to these fragile threads of faith in our souls. But what we've done is instead of acting more like Jesus, we have taken our former fundamentalism and rebranded it into progressivism, and we haven't changed the method at all. We still fight fire with fire. We don't beat people up with the Bible anymore yet. But we sure do drag them. We try really hard to drag them down the same path that we have walked without any regard for their mental state or what they're even capable of receiving. We have changed our conservative theology for liberally attempting to poke holes in everyone else's theology. We don't blast people for having questions, right? We came from places where you're not allowed to have questions because that's a lack of faith. So we're like, no, no, questions are allowed. But we sure do blast people for not having questions. We're like, how could they not? What? That's the same method. Is that the kind of fasting the Lord requires? The Israelites were doing everything they possibly could to show God how serious they were, except for the one hardest thing which was being present in every moment 
with the people already around them and being open to their faith, having something to say about their interactions with each other. They were begging God to heal them. They're going through every motion to get this healing they wanted. And God's like, just, just open your eyes. Just pay attention to your own family who needs help. Open your eyes to the humans who are hurting right next to you. Even the ones you disagree with, don't like, or are actively working against you. Maybe I should rephrase that too. Open your eyes, especially to the humans that you don't like, disagree with you, and are actively working against you because maybe that's what it means to love your enemy. God's saying, remember, remember when people are in pain, I am actually there every time. It doesn't matter. Remember when you were in pain, I, have, I was there every time and I still am there every time. And when you were in pain, when you were trapped in a conservative space that didn't have, give you room to be who you were, I was there in that pain. And when you had all your questions and you hadn't have space to answer them and no one was telling you it was okay, I was there in that pain too. And when you went through something with your family and someone died or someone cut you out or someone moved on and I was there in that pain too. And why are you not there for their pain? 